Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Katie Ferris's work has been commissioned by MoMA and appears in American Poetry Review, Granta, McSweeney's The Nation, Poetry, and many more. She is the author of the chapbook, A Net to Catch My Body in Its Weaving, which won the 2020 Chad Welsh Poetry Award from Beloyal Poetry Journal and Boys Girls, a hybrid form book, as well as co-translator of many books of poetry. She holds degrees from UC Berkeley and Brown University. She is currently Associate Professor in Creative Writing at Georgia Institute of Technology. Standing in the Forest of Being Alive, Alice James Books 2023, is her first book of poems and what we'll be discussing today. Katie, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you so much, James. Well, before we talk about your poetry and your book, share a few thoughts for students considering enrolling in an MFA program. From the perspective of a student, and now an associate professor, how should students approach an MFA to get the most out of the experience? That's a great question. I taught in an MFA program for about eight years at San Diego State University, and then I've taught in low residency programs here and there, um, New England College most recently. So, and of course I got my MFA from Brown University. So I've seen it kind of from multiple perspectives now. and. When students ask me what to expect, I always say, you know, the most important thing you're going to get out of your MFA is time to write. That is absolutely the most essential thing. And that's the the thing you can pretty much be guaranteed. You know, if you're a person who needs deadlines um, and, and other people's sort of uh, pressure in order to get you to succeed, that can be really effective. Most likely you will come out of an MFA program with at least one or two good readers, you know? Um, if you're lucky, you might come out of an MFA program with a mentor um, that lasts, you know, with a relationship that lasts beyond those two to three years, depending on where you attend. Um, though that's certainly not a guarantee. Um, you may come out of there with people who can write you blurbs um, or write you recommendation letters. That's certainly recommendation letters you should be able to count on um, from, from faculty who, whose class you've taken, provided they don't um, you know, retire in the interim. Um, I think a lot of people go in expecting they're going to have a book when they get done. That may or may not be true. Uh, when I finished my MFA program, I had a book. Um, but it was not the first book I published and it was not the second book I published. And um, so, you know, you come out with a manuscript of some kind, but it might not quite be what you expect. I also wouldn't go into an MFA program necessarily expecting an easy job on the other side. Um, there are jobs that you can get, um, teaching adjunct rhetoric and writing composition type classes are typically pretty easy to find. Um, but it can be, it's quite a challenge, um, to get into like a solid tenure track position. Adjuncting, some people love doing it and they do it their whole lives and my hat off to them. I think they're extraordinary people, extraordinary teachers. Um, but it can be a lot of work. So I'd say if you're going into an MFA program primarily 
with the hope of having a university position, like a, uh, a tenured university position on the other side, it would be good to talk with other people, check that out, depending on where you are in the country and how, how far you're willing to travel and how much you're willing to teach, that may be viable, but it, it's not something to count on. And that's something I'd really want students to know before they took on the debt and the time um, to go into an MFA program. That is wonderfully pragmatic advice. And that's exactly why I was uh, starting off with that question, given your background. That's wonderful. Well, let's pivot now to standing in the forest of being alive. It interweaves your powerful experiences battling cancer at a relatively young age and social issues, yet never really preaches. Before getting it into specific poems, how in general do you tackle such powerful subjects without the subject overwhelming the beauty of poetry? That's a great question. And I, I would say most of the poems that I wrote around this time, both around the issue of America. This was, you know, I had um, my surgery just five days before, six days before the, or I'm sorry, the insurrection happened six days before my surgery. So things were happening kind of neck and neck. Um, and most of the poetry that I wrote during this time was totally overwhelmed by the subject matter. It was <laughs> awful, it was preachy. It was frustrated. It was, you know, it was not just emotional. It was sentimental because I was just flailing around in fury and fear. Um, and so most of it was crap. Um, maybe 10% of it was decent. And of that, maybe 5% ended up in this book. So <laughs> I, I'd like to pretend like I have the magical, um, uh, you know, wand that just makes good stuff come out. But in actuality, the only the only thing I have is maybe the ability most of the time to distinguish what is good work from bad work or good work from work that just doesn't fit, you know? And I've made mistakes with that as well, but that's what I would say. Um, one of the things I really focused on as I was writing the book was trying to incorporate humor where I could. Um, and that's a, it can be a tricky thing, both with cancer and with, um, you know, criticizing a, a country, which I love, um, but also which I am very, very critical of um, because it has some work to do. Um, and so uh, that that was one of the things where as I was going through and reading um, uh, poems, you know, the big pile of poems that I've accumulated during this time, it was like, is there a touch of humor in there? Can I pull that, tease that out a little bit, make it a little bit more of a strain? If not humor, like funny haha, at least some wordplay or some um, some sort of linguistic strangeness, you know, that I can use to turn this on its head so that I don't run the risk of taking myself so seriously, um, at least all the time. You know, there's certainly some very serious poems in there, but um, I, I think providing some variety of tone was fundamentally what I was looking to do where I could. No, I think that the, the, you were very effective in, in, in conveying the power of this, of these interleaving subject matters without it being a bullhorn blasting in someone's ear, telling them exactly how they should react and think it was a little more subtle than that, but still very powerful. So I think that that's that your message there of you may need to write some of those things that are, purely just to get it out of your system, but you have to take a step back and decide, is this poetry or not? And um, it's it's great to hear that you, you wrote all those things that you end up deciding to edit out. That editorial edit effort is so critical. 
Yeah. And I think maybe professional poets sometimes fear talking about the fact that they write shit like that, <laughs> that there's this like sort of um, conspiracy of like, you know, I'm professional now and I write amazing all the time. I don't, you know, I still think if I'm lucky 10, five to 10% of what I write is decent. Um, and I, I don't think there's, I don't think that's exceptional. Um, and at least for students, I think that's often a relief for them to hear, you know, cause they just expect to sit down and be struck by this, you know, perfect muse all the time. And now <laughs> I've been doing it for 20 years. I, I it, it's every once in a while that happens, but I don't count on it. You know, <laughs> exactly. Yes. There's many poems I've written, which I really don't want to get published after I'm gone. They can just, they can go into the grave with me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, a, a, a row of rows or a row of rows is one of many poems in this book where you achieve exquisite brevity. You write a pleasant row of rows, little rugs on the strings of our love, just enough to pull taut. First of all, I think it's interesting how I can pronounce that multiple ways and it, and it tweaks it a little bit. But uh, yeah. like many poems in this book, the lines are compact, just a few words with most of the white space undisplaced. How would you describe your poetic voice and how it has developed over the years into this very distinct style? That is such a good question. Um, I, I, my first book was uh, small prose pieces, you know, somewhere between prose poems and flash fictions and short stories, somewhere in that range, but always in prose, always in sentences. And um, I think I'd been trying to be a fiction writer I have been trying to be a fiction writer for a very long time. At some point in the last five or six years, I finally was like, you know what? I, I think, I think I am a poet. You know, it, it was almost <laughs> like a confession I had to make. Like I had to spend 15 years going way out of my way before I came back around to where I started with poetry. And what I found when I was moving from sentences into lines again, I'd kind of lost my confidence about how to break a line. I, I didn't, you know, it's so, I was so used to just letting, yeah, letting chance break the line that it, it felt like this huge responsibility. So one of the things I, I started getting really into um, metered poetry and really studying prosody and loving it and failing at it over and over again, um, but still loving it. And right around the time I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I was finishing, I just read the whole all of Emily Dickinson, the full collected, you know? Um, and I was really struck by her ballad meter and it was very easy for me to just kind of fall into it. And that became sort of my first step into this shorter line. And then I was writing love poems, even before I was diagnosed, actually, I was writing love poems and I was being really cheesy, um, as love poetry often, <laughs> I don't know, compels you to be. And I was like, you know, I need to be writing, if I'm really going to be writing love poetry to one other person, then I should be writing in Demeter, two beats per line. It's kind of like two heartbeats together in a line. You know, it's this very, like I say, this kind of very cheesy thing um, that happened. But that very short line, and then uh, the ballad meter that um, uh, Emily Dickinson uses, she's alternating between uh, lines of three beats and lines of four beats back and forth. Uh, and I mostly write in iams. And so that kind of pulled me, like I, I, I saw the justification for breaking the line. Mm -hmm. and, and then I started writing poetry who, whose content really fit that really 
abbreviated line. I think I wasn't trying to write long sentences for the most part anymore. I was I was thinking more in phrases instead of in these very long uh, sentences. So I think, I mean, that's a very like kind of nuts and bolts way of looking at it. But I think that was a huge shift for me. Um, and it gave me some confidence to play a little bit more in some of the, you know, the longer poems, the more statementy poems like uh, The Wheel or um, the final poem of the book. Um, so, yeah, I, that, that's some of what I think changed uh, most dramatically. Uh, what a wonderful answer to how did your poetic voice evolve? That's probably one of the best answers I've gotten on that question. Uh, and it just I think it's really important for people to hear and realize that their voice is going to evolve and change over years and can start from a very different place, like you said, uh, writing uh, or trying to write fiction and deciding, you know what, actually, I'm a poet. I love that. That's wonderful. Yeah, there are things I could do then that I can't do now. And I know there are things that I can do now that I couldn't do then. And I'm sure it'll keep on changing, you know, just like with all of us. Well, in The Invention of America, you experiment with repetition, with line length and word placement. It's a howl at times, longer than many poems in the collection, and is an effective shift in form placed between two very slight poems. How did you approach the ordering of poems, the connections between poems, and in particular, the placement of a poem like this that stands out in form and in voice? I think you did such a good job sort of of setting that up in terms of one of the things, you know, the book sort of incorporates three major threads. There's the love poems, there are the cancer poems, and then there's the America poems, right? And there is some overlap between those, but they're fairly distinct categories. And so as I was ordering the book, which was very difficult to do, Mm -hmm. um, very difficult, it was in sections for a long time. I played around with a lot of things. I consulted with a lot of people. There were a lot of people that helped me out. Jessica Jacobs, who helped me edit my chapbook, had really wonderful thoughts on that. Maggie Nelson had some really beautiful, helpful thoughts on how to keep, you know, how to how to order the book. Um, at the end of the day, a lot of it was thinking about that tonal or that textural variation. As you said, if I've got a big, long, heavy poem, kind of a hard-hitting um poem, then putting it in between two smaller transitional poems with with a little bit, it allowed me to kind of move from love poetry into that idea of America and then back out again. And I think transitions, especially for big poems, are things that maybe we talk about less in poetry than we do in fiction. Mm-hmm. Like when you're reading a book of poems, you may not notice um, that, you know, there is kind of a transitional piece um, before like you know something big and heavy hitting there almost has to be if you put a bunch of sluggers in a row you know nobody's going to be able to absorb things at a certain point you have to give a little drop in tension if you want the tension to build again um and that leads to you know one of the things i i think about a lot is you know how do you how do you keep the hits coming? Like, I don't want to put anything in a book that is not worthy of being in a book, but I also know some, you know, there have to be, it's like the sleeper hits on an album. You know what I mean? Yeah. You've got the slow songs in between the fast songs. Um, and so, yeah, that was, there were even points where I really felt like I didn't have enough of those. And I went into my big pile and had to chop up some old, you know, poem 
to get to just a small piece that was enough to stand, but not so much that it needed a lot of attention. Um, because I wanted, of course, to put the spotlight on, you know, the invention of America or, you know, whatever other big poem needed that attention. No, I think that you're, um, the point we're talking about here about the transitions between poems is so important and such a hard decision. Yes. The ordering of poems for collections is just so difficult. So difficult. I don't know how you've done it so many times. (laughs) (laughs) It's not, doesn't not get any easier. And with my, the book I'm working on right now, which incorporates like your book, multiple elements. Do I group them all together? Do I spread them out? Do I interleave them? Oh my goodness. My head. I mean, I go, you go, I go in circles trying to think of the best way and I'm still going in those circles. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned uh, earlier this, you you tried to imbue your collection with some humor. I'm just going to read the poem uh, start to finish, quid pro quo, a dedication. You said we could replace our lumpy 20-year-old mattress if I wrote you a poem. So here's your goddamn poem. (laughs) It's just hilarious. How do you advise poets' approach incorporating humor into poetry? Uh, And humor is deceptively difficult. It is. It is so difficult. Um, I think it's difficult in part sometimes because we don't trust it when something is too easy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 it's like that poem, I, as I said, I was writing love poems even before I was diagnosed with cancer. And most of them didn't make it into the manuscript that it, most of them I wrote you know, I kept writing them afterwards, but this poem I think was before I was diagnosed. And it was just a funny thing. I literally, I I wrote it for my husband. I left it on a post-it, you know, on the, (laughs) on the refrigerator. Um, and as I was kind of running through, um, and looking for, looking for love poems, that one, I was sort of like, no, it's too easy. There's another poem in the manuscript called Rachel's chair, Mm -hmm. which I was like, eh, this is sort of like, it's just a, I don't know, it's just a silly thing. And people really love that poem, you know? And and it surprises me somehow. Um, and it, it's made me, first I had to trust them, right? Yeah. And then I had to learn how to trust myself. Just like with any, like, this is why Workshop is so wonderful, is you get this chorus of voices telling you, this is great. You know, hopefully you've got voices telling you this is great, as well as this is not so great. So you can be like, huh, okay. I didn't think that was any good, but if you, if so many people are in agreement about that, then maybe it is. And then slowly you start to recognize it in yourself, right? You can be a little bit more objective about it. And I think that that experience with this Rachel's chair poem helped me understand with something like this, you can just have a sentence or two um, that is very straightforward, very, you know, sort of, I want to say declamatory, but that sounds like Walt Whitman, but I don't know, <laughs> intimately declamatory and, and not have a lot of, you know, capital P poetry in there. And it can work sometimes, you know, I would read a book like that. And, and as, as far as my advice is, yes, please just do it. <laughs> I would love to read more funny poetry. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, Billy Collins, I think has done his most recent book is extremely short clever little snippets like this and he's got a whole book of them and I think that yeah you don't have to write something that pulls from the necessarily pulls from Greek history and is 10 pages long and extraordinarily complex to be a poem that resonates Uh, those are important too but yeah I think it's it's a good thing for people to remember trust your instincts and your audience 
Absolutely. Yeah. Another poet who I think who does this really beautifully is Andrea Cohen or mm-hmm. Andrea Cohen. Um, who writes very, very short lyrics, and she's just a master of the form. I think every, pretty much every book she's written primarily has been these very, very short, compacted um, uh, poems. And there's so much uh, cleverness and humor and wit and possibility in that, you know? Well, I love the titles of so many of the poems in this collection. Uh, one of many, many examples. I wake to find you wandering the museum of my body a title that you could argue is a poem in itself. How do you approach the challenge of titling a poem? um, And what are the characteristics of an effective title when you're taking a step back and and revising and editing? I am so honored that you like my titling. I struggle with it a lot. (laughs) Um, I I have this joke when I was a kid. It's not a joke. It's the truth. When I was a kid, I, I named my stuff Dog Doggy. I named my stuff Cat Kitty. I named my stuff Rabbit Bunny. You know what I mean? Just not a lot of like, hmm, not a lot of creativity in there. Um, so when I title a poem, most of the time I'm looking in in the poem itself for an unusual line or something like that. I find when I title from, um, like if I'm trying to come up with a title, it's almost always terrible. Like the the title of A Nut to Catch My Body in Its Weaving, the um, the chapbook that is the precursor to Standing in the Forest of Being Alive. Originally, it was called Emma Loma, which is uh, a, um, a a mashup of like Emily as in Emily Dickinson and Oma as in a solid body as in a, a tumor, right? And it, it was because the idea of Emily Dickinson and cancer became intimately married in my mind, just by my experiences. Um, but that was like me trying to be clever, which Mm -hmm. is deadly. When I try to be clever, it's not, it's never good. Like it has to surprise me, you know, it can't, it can't be me like thinking, plotting it out ahead of time. I'm always amazed by people who can do that. Um, so I think in terms of what makes an effective, um, uh, title for me, for the most part, I do love, like you said, if, if a, if a poem's title can feel like a poem in and of itself, that, that always feels powerful to me. I I think what I want to read this, if this was all there was to it, you know, um, and some of the, that works more effectively for some poems than for other poems. Um, I think also, you know, I, I do often take the idea from fiction that ideally a title has, you know, there's some kind of double or triple meaning to it that there's that there's the superficial, and then you can fall through to another level of depth, and ideally, maybe even fall through another level of depth beyond that. And that's partly because I love puns, I love wordplay, I love I love using unexpected words. I just love words. No, I just love language. <laughs> so, in uh, to the pathologist reading my breast palimpsest. It's a powerful blending of found medical text, so dispassionate and clinical by design, along with poetry. The rhymes and phrases you find only amplify that found text. Share how this, you know, this this uh, poem popped into your mind. Did you just see it when you were reading this report, or were you? Did you have in mind I want to write something that incorporates this clinical medical text, and then you went and looked for it in the reports you'd you'd you know been generated during your experience? Actually. 
neither one. Um, this was a tough one. I've been trying to write what I called my mastectomy poem for a long time. The the others, most of the chemo poems I wrote as I was going through chemo, the radiation poems I was writing as I was going through radiation, like everything, because I was posting about it on social media as it was happening. Um, and each update I was doing about every two weeks, three weeks, sometimes a month included a poem. They were all, you know, they were, it was really in medias rest, you know, it was happening as it was happening. Mm -hmm. But, um, I think, I was so frightened of the surgery. Uh, a lot of women say that, not women, like all people, mm -hmm. uh, answer, say, you know, I was really, like the surgery was the easiest part. I wanted it out. I wanted it off me. I wanted it out of me. Um, I didn't have that feeling. Um, it, it was very tough for me and it's still kind of tough for me. So I, I wrote a poem sort of before the mastectomy, a couple poems about the experience of kind of going into it. But that poem was not in my chat book because I didn't get it done during that time. I was reading all of the pathology reports. I'm a real biology and medical nerd. I actually did pre-med and undergrad and really wanted to grow up and be a doctor. So I was always reading the reports as soon as they were out. I was Googling a lot of stuff. I, I had a pretty good medical vocabulary and, um, for the most part, none of the reports really shook me, but this one did. And so eventually I had read it the first time just because I needed to know some facts about, you know, my condition. I eventually went back to it uh, probably six or eight months. No, it wasn't quite that long, but it was, it was several months afterwards uh, just to look it up because I had a question, like a medical related question. And then I noted the um the rhyme of specimen and formalin which is what i write about at the beginning of the yeah, poem yeah and i'm like well shit no. <laughs> there it is <laughs> there it is and part of, part of the i mean one of the projects of the book that i was aware of was this sort of way that what i was trying to do both with the social media posts with the poems with this book and hopefully as it goes on with the promotion of this work is to sort of demystify as much as possible and to open up the conversation and to really allow people into, if they want to enter into this experience and to know that it comes with its horrors, but also in a, in a strange way, maybe with its, if not pleasures, then at least it's delights as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted also not to speak back necessarily to medicine. I understand why these people have to write these reports this way. Could you imagine if it was your job just to go through various amputated parts all day long and you had to think about the people and, uh, you know, the, the emotional weight is our, must already be so high for pathologists. Yeah. But I, I did want to be playfully addressing uh, the, the doctor who did this work and sort of the medical community in general in being like, yep. Okay. Well, you could, you could put it this way. I'll put it that way. <laughs> but I, I think some doctors really do lose track, lose the, lose the, um, lose the thread and lose the humanity. Uh, and I think sometimes they do need to be snapped back, but most of my experiences with doctors was, was actually, uh, the opposite. They 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 knew very well that they were working with human beings, and they tried very hard to keep the humanity um, first and foremost. 
Um, so it's not necessarily a rag against doctors all the time, but then I had some bad experiences too, uh, especially at the beginning, just to get, um, diagnosed because mm -hmm. I was 36. And in fact, I think I was 35 when I went in with the lump for the first time. Um, and it, it's tough to get doctors to take you seriously. And later on after my cancer, I was having some heart problems. And again, it was very hard to get anybody to take it seriously and finally, I got into a cardiologist and they said, yeah, you have heart failure. Um, so, you know, there are some things that were really difficult medically, but for the most part, I, I had a lot of love and respect for my physicians. So this, I thought of this as a playful way to be in conversation, although the poem does get quite sharp toward the end, mm -hmm. but more about just the irony of being ill, you know, with a dear friend pregnant, um, not so much about the medical field in general. Boy, that that wound around a few times. <laughs> it's an incredibly powerful poem. Um, and just the incorporation of found text and just so many elements going on. Well, I was also moved by your determination to live the thread of hope that is woven through many of the poems. In Woman with Amputated Breast Awaits PET Scan Results, you write, Help me to spell waiting. I forget. And whom can I tell how much I want to live? I want to live. And in To the God of Radiation, you write, O God of Radiation, let your light like a ship pass through me, your radiance exposing, exposing what's inside me like film a God takes. You've touched on this a little bit. Um, how do you hope that your experience conveyed through this poetry uh, helps those impacted directly or indirectly, which is so many people, um, uh, or impacted indirectly or directly by cancer, and by those who haven't had that in that experience close enough that they really empathize. What, what do you hope that they get away, take away from your book? Yeah, uh, this was something I really thought about a lot from the get go, which is not usual for me. I, this is the first time I really engaged with my audience directly as the book was coming before there even was a book, you know, as I was writing updates about where I was medically and started sharing these poems, I was, I was struggling a lot with how do I do this publicly? You know, this was pre-vaccination COVID time, right? I, nobody could come with me to any of my appointments. Um, I was really alone, really medically vulnerable. Um, couldn't see anybody, you know, even more so than all of us couldn't see anybody. Um, and, and it was tough and this is a way that I was making connection, but I was also afraid that I was kind of, um, like, I, I wasn't sure if I would want to read my own updates, you know what I mean? So I was like, why am I burdening people, especially at this time, which is so difficult for everybody? Why am I doing this? And what started coming up was, you know, was direct messages and text messages and emails and, um, of people who, one woman texted me and was like, you know, my, my sister had breast cancer and she never really talked about it. And I, I always wanted to know more about what she was experiencing. And I understand why she couldn't let me into that, but your, your book gave me an opportunity to, um, to know her better and to feel like I understood her better, which was really powerful. Or people with breast cancer would reach out and say, I didn't have the words for, for this experience but it really, this really matched how I felt. And it, I was able to, you know, release some of the, the trauma of 
this experience uh, as a result of, you know, of reading those words. And um, that left me with a responsibility that I, I didn't realize I was signing up for <laughs> at that point, which is to, um, which was to keep going, which was to keep hoping, not just for myself, but for other people as well. Um, it was to keep trying to speak not for, but um, with this community uh, that I became a part of, this community nobody wants to become a part of, the cancer community, you know. Um, but, but, you know, a lot of people, as you said, one in two people in the world will end up with cancer. Now, some of that could be something as simple as like a basal skin cell, uh, you know, type cancer, which just gets popped off and a lot of a lot of us end up with um, cancers that we live with for the rest of our lives, as long or short as those may be. Um, so it's it's quite a variety of experiences. So that's why I have to say with, not for, because yeah. Lord knows I can't speak for everybody. Well, before I hand the mic over to you to read selections from your book, um, as a as a as a professor, what are you hoping to impart to your students, and what have you learned from your students over the years? Oh man so much. Um, one of the first things I think that I have learned from my students is um, how brilliant they already are. Um, I think that there's a lot of fear about producing, there's a lot of emphasis on product, on this word that I really hate, makes me shiver, uh, deliverables. <laughs> it's like reading, a, a, it's like uh, watching a horror movie or something. I say it just to give myself the shivers. Um, <laughs> Like they want to write a good poem. And I'm like, well, you could, you could do that and you will do that. But actually what we're here to do and where your brilliance already lies is in the experimentation and in the process and in the writing itself, uh, the verb, you know, not the noun. Uh, and the the more the deeper I've gone with them down this road of trying to to verb poetry rather than noun uh, poetry, as in to do the work of writing and to spend less time focused on um, crafting one perfect thing or a handful of good things that they can go on and and publish. Um, that is a byproduct, and it's a happy byproduct, but it is not the point, and learning to live by this myself has been excruciating. <laughs> it's easy to say that to other people, but it's really hard to abide by it and live by it yourself. But as somebody, you know, I've been writing for 20, my first uh, publication came out in 2001, 22 years I've been publishing. My first book came out in 2011. Um, I've been, I've been doing this for a long time, but uh, it's easy to feel like you, you, you're not successful. Mm -hmm. I think in this field, as in any arts field, it's easy to get like a chip on your shoulder. And one of the, the biggest antidote to that, that I have ever found is being like, you know what? I'm not here for the poem or the book or the prize. I'm here for the work to do the work, to love the work, to enjoy the work. That's, that's actually the that's what this is. You know, that's the point of this thing. Um, at least for me, I, I, I appreciate that other people might experience that differently. And I used to say, I like having written, you know, <laughs> <laughs> 
but I, I don't feel that way anymore. And I think that's, it keeps me sane in a world that feels, uh, even, even the poetry world sometimes feels so bizarre and insane. And, and it's, that's what helps me step back. And, and it was not just me that figured that out. You know, that was me and my students working on it together. Me trying to be like, how can I get you to focus less on this first poem you've ever written in your life and you being afraid that it's not good enough for you to ever write another poem again, you know, cause that's not what it's about. Um, but that necessitated a, a shift in my own, you know, quote unquote poetics as well. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the thing that I have learned. And the thing that I, I if I, if I, when I die, um, poetry wise, if, if my students come away, believing even that at 5%, I will have succeeded. Terrific. Well, now I'm going to turn the mic over to you to read selections from Standing in the Forest of Being Alive. Why write love poetry in a burning world? To train myself to find in the midst of hell what isn't hell. The body, bald, cancerous, but still beautiful enough to imagine living the body, washing the body, replacing a loose front porch step, the body chewing what it takes to keep a body going. This scene has a tune, a language I can read. This scene has a door I cannot close. I stand within its wedge, a shield. Why write love poetry in a burning world? To train myself in the midst of a burning world, to offer poems of love to a burning world. In the event of my death, what used to be a rope descending my vertebrae to the basement of my spine grew thin. In solidarity with my first chemotherapy, our cat leaves her whiskers on the hardwood floor. I gather them, each pure white parenthesis, and plant them in the throat of the earth. In quarantine, I learned to trim your barbarian hair. Now it stands always on end, a salute to my superior Barbary skills. In the event of my death, promise you will find my heavy braid and bury it. I will need a rope to let me down into the earth. I've hidden others strategically around the globe, a net to catch my body in its weaving. An unexpected turn of events midway through chemotherapy. I'd like some sex, please. I'm not too picky. After all, have you seen me? So skinny you could shiv me with me? Philosexical, soft and gentle, a real straight fucking, rhymed or metrical. Whatever you've got, I'll take it. Just so long as we're naked. Well, I have to ask a question about an unexpected turn of events midway through chemotherapy. It's so visceral, and the title captures it perfectly, unexpected. Uh, this reads like one of those poems that falls out of the poet beautifully formed, whether it did or not, a part of the question. How did you approach revising and editing this poem and the poems in the book? I This poem actually really did pretty much fall out. Um, I It was longer uh, I kept on kind of word playing and I tried to cut the lamest dad jokes out, you know, yeah. <laughs> keep, keep the best of my dad jokes. 
Um, I, the the one line that did change was uh, so skinny you could shiv me with me. That came much later. I, I actually can't remember what the initial aside was, um, but it was not good. And I was like, boy, I got to come up with an alternative to that. Um, and it took me a long time um, to come up with this. And I can't even remember. It wasn't part of another poem. I think it was just one of those things where you're standing around one day and you're like, oh, I got it. Wait, I need a pen. <laughs> yeah. You know? um, for the most part, um, I find for me, I'm definitely not a first draft writer. Um, I don't hit, you know, I, I, those people amaze me. I do occasionally get a first draft and those are almost always my best work. Um, what I do find that I do, so a lot of the poems that I cut out ironically are the poems that I've worked the hardest on because they just get, I, I, I can overwork my poetry really easily. Um, I have a tendency to want things to be so muscular that they get very dense and wordy um, and they don't have the kind of lightness that I think this particularly poems on this subject need you know it, you need to let the air in mm -hmm. and I have a hard time doing that with editing um, so a, a lot of the times what I'm doing more is uh, going back cutting things out pruning the poem to let the light in um, and then occasionally doing mashups um, pulling uh, pieces that I hadn't thought were related into the same world and then trying to fit them together. And uh, those poems, if I don't have to, do, again, if I don't have to overwork them too much, that can often be um, very successful for me as a technique. Yeah, I wish I could say that every poem I've written has fallen out of me, but maybe I can think of exactly two, one of which a short poem came fully formed and it was just there. And then another one that was 80% fully formed, a much longer poem. Uh, but yeah, that's that's about 2% of the time, if that. So right. yes. for poets that can actually do that, I think they should keep it to themselves because... Well, <laughs> yeah. Tell us. Don't tell us it's don't, I don't want to know. Tell us you spent hours and hours and years. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, well finally, uh, in addition to promoting this wonderful book, which comes out, I believe, in April, correct? Yes, April 4th. Uh, April 4th. And uh, what what else are you working on right now that, of course, you know, books are, you know, they take so long to come to the surface that you're working on things well ahead of when they'll be surfaced. What are you working on now in addition to promoting this book? I'm working on a lot of essays, which, of course, is connected with the promotion of the book, but potentially could form into a book. Um it's hard for me to go back to prose after being so long in poetry. It feels like kind of a, a, a step, I don't want to say backwards, but certainly to the side. Um, and poetry wise, it's funny. I've been, I've been struggling because I find that I still have so many cancer poems in me. Um, that's still, I mean, I'm still in active treatment now, you know, it's still kind of one of the most major features of my life. Um, and I was like, I can't do that. I have to write about something else. And a friend was like, well, why though? And I was like, cause you can't have more than one cancer book. Like I've already written my cancer book. And she was like, well, you still have cancer. Right. And I was like, well, yeah. But she was like, well, then maybe just, you know, keep going. So it, it's right now it's not, um, I'm not anywhere near the book formation process, but in terms of what I am producing, the content still seems to be wrapped a lot around cancer. I've been, I've been talking about how philosophically I've been thinking a lot about 
asymmetry and uncertainty. Um, the aesthetics of asymmetry as a person with only one breast, um, I've been thinking a lot about the beauty of asymmetry and what makes something asymmetrical and still beautiful. Like what is the alternative to the golden ratio, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of uncertainty, this, this, uh, this cancer that I'm living with is very hard to see. And so there's a lot of question about whether it's still there, whether it's not still there, do we treat it as if it's still there? Um, and it's a frustration both for myself and for my doctors. Um, and so this, uh, this idea of uncertainty, uh, is, is, and, and how to live, not just how to stand uncertainty, not just how to tolerate it, but how it can be, and actually probably is, um, the key to unlocking joy in a lot of ways, because our lives, whether we're hyper aware of uncertainty or not, our lives are perpetually uncertain and learning to balance on, on that uncertainty um, and become flexible in that way, uh, I think has extraordinary potential um, for, for joyfulness, no matter what the experiences, you know, the, the outside circumstances of your life are. I don't know. I'm still working on it. Clearly. <laughs> well, uncertainty but, and the and the beauty of asymmetry just right there, that's such a rich vein to mine poetry from. So I'm excited to see what you come up with. Thank you so much, James. This has been such a pleasure. Well, it's so it was so wonderful having you on the Viola Swings Poetry Podcast today. And I, I wish you all the success with your book and to getting to the other side of this of battle with cancer that so many of uh, I have so many friends. And, you know, people just a step removed have gone through both younger and older than you. And it's 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 just brutal. It is a brutal thing to witness a step removed. And I and I um, I hope wish you the best to get to the other side of it. Thank you so much. And I do want to say if there's anybody in active treatment who would like a copy of the book, I will send you a signed copy for free. Just track me down. I'm at Katie Farr, K-A-T-I-E-F-A-R on Twitter and on Instagram, that's probably the two easiest places. Send me your address and I will send a book along to you. And if anybody has a cancer group or anything that would like to read the book, I will send along copies for everybody in the, in the group. And I will, um, I'll meet with your group and talk with y'all for as long as you need. I'd really like this to get into the hands of people who want it. And I'm, I'm happy to, um, I'm happy to do that. So please be in touch. And for those that are driving or unable to write down all of the details just shared, they will be in the show notes and on viewlesswings.com with the article that accompanies this episode. Thank you so much for sharing your, your poetry and your voice. Thanks again, James. Thanks for Viewless Wings. Thank you. The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings. Wings.